This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome back to another episode of the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, bringing you news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by educational grants from Eli Lilly, Merck Sharp and Dome Corp and Novo Nordisk AS, who have had no influence on the content or the choice of faculty. Continuing our recent focus on optimising cardiorenal outcomes, today we're exploring the key question, what happens if you combine an SGLT2 inhibitor with a GLP-1 receptor agonist? Trials of SGLT2 inhibitors like Emperor Reduced, DAPA-HF and DAPA-CKD have shown that SGLT2 inhibitors can provide a cardioprotective and nephroprotective effect in people with and without diabetes. Similar trials are currently ongoing to investigate if this is also the case with the cardioprotective effects of GLP-1 receptor agonists. So what would happen if both agents were combined? Would they provide greater cardioprotection? Are their mechanisms of action so similar that the overall effect would be the same? Or could they oppose each other in combination and provide no cardioprotective effect at all? This week we're discussing these questions with Dr Darren Maguire. Dr. Maguire is Professor of Internal Medicine at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in the Division of Cardiology, and he has expertise in large-scale cardiovascular outcomes trials in diabetes and cardiology. His disclosures are available in the episode notes. Hello, Dr. Maguire. Thank you very much for joining us today. So firstly, there are a number of multifactorial effects with SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists. And we know that combining both the agents further reduces glucose compared to either agent alone. But what about, say, weight loss? Yeah, so uh, as you say, they they both um, lower A1C and they do so complementary. So they add to each other for the glucose control. And we have some indirect evidence that they're probably complementary in their weight effects. They're probably not additive. Um, as far as I know, there's only one randomized trial that looked at the combination versus either the two individually. And there was a small increase in the weight loss when the two were combined, but it wasn't um, as much as adding the two effects together. And of course, that will, with SGLT2 inhibitors, it's a little bit dependent on um, how much hyperglycemia you're dealing with because the weight loss there is directly related to the amount of glucose excreted in the urine. So um, ironically, the worse your glucose control is, the more weight loss you can expect with an SGLT2 inhibitor because you're simply sumping more glucose in the urine on a daily basis. And with that goes calories, of course. And with this in mind, what do we know about the cardiorenal effects of both agents and the mechanism behind the cardiovascular and renal protection? Right. You know, there's been a consistent signal across both of the classes of medications for for renal effects um, uh, specifically. And the SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, the data are a little bit more robust and consistent across the class of compounds. In fact, um, there's no heterogeneity whatsoever across the reported trials on the kidney-related outcomes with each of the four available SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, so they alter the progression of kidney function decline. They, they reduce the slope of the decline of the estimated glomerular filtration rate, the EGFR. In the GLP-1 receptor agonist realm, it looks like the effect is more related to albuminuria, the prevention of progression to albuminuria. And among patients with albuminuria, there's actually some patients who regress to resolve their albuminuria and the halting of progression to higher levels of albuminuria. And so um, it does seem that there are probably different mechanisms involved in the two. There's some 
fairly sophisticated renal physiology that's been proposed with the SGLT2 inhibitors where um, there's restoration of tubuloglomerular feedback, a, a mechanism that controls the afferent arteriolar tone. And, and so these drugs are thought independent of their glucose effects to directly affect glomerular hypertension and probably through that mechanism have um, immediate and sustained benefits on the glomerular health. Um, I think there's a lot less known about or speculated about the mechanism by which GLP-1 receptor agonist may affect um, kidney function. One hypothesis is that just simply by the weight loss that's induced by GLP-1 receptor agonists, we know that obesity is associated with glomerular hyperfiltration. And so there may be filtration effects simply by the weight reduction. And also over the long term, the GLP-1 receptor agonists tend to be more potent, lowering blood glucose. And of course, we know that managing blood glucose over the longer term favorably affects kidney health as well. So theoretically, would combining both agents further reduce MACE in high-risk patients? And is there any evidence to support this? Yeah, it's a, it's a very important question clinically as we struggle. You know, we, we struggle to decide which patients to treat once we found the patients to treat, which agent to use or which agent to use first. And then the question becomes, once on an agent, if you need additional blood glucose control, should we add the second agent of these two classes, not just for glucose control, but anticipating additional cardiovascular and kidney benefits? And I, I'm optimistic that, that that is the case. I think the mechanisms are so clearly different with regards to their cardiovascular benefits that um, there, there's no reason um, to expect that there would be there would not be complementary mechanisms. You know, in cardiology, we use a lot of medications that have been proven independent of one another, like aspirin and like statins and blood pressure control. And and we have full confidence that there's complementary actions of each of those medications. And when added all together, um, we uh, we amplify the cardio cardiovascular benefit. So with regards to the mechanisms of cardiovascular benefit, the SGLT2 inhibitors appear to be much more heart failure related um, benefits than MACE actually. There's probably neurohormonal modification and volume reduction along with the weight reduction and blood pressure reduction. And so um, there's much more potent effect on heart failure than there is on atherosclerotic cardiovascular based outcomes. And I think the opposite is true with the GLP-1 receptor agonists where they they look more to be uh, fairly directly anti-atherosclerotic, a little bit like the statins, where we see the curves separate a little bit later with the GLP-1 receptor agonists, but once they begin to separate, they continue to diverge, suggesting that there's ongoing disease modification, not just stabilization, but probably preventing the prog progression of atherosclerosis. And a lot of, you know, again, we don't know the mechanism specifically, and it's clearly for both of these classes, independent of their glucose effects. So these are cardiovascular medications for sure. And probably with the GLP-1 receptor agonist, it has something to do with their anti-inflammatory effects. They're probably stabilizing atherosclerosis as it exists and also pre pre preventing its progression by inhibiting uh, the inflammatory stimulus for atherosclerosis. And similarly, what about renal effects? We know that SGLT2 inhibitors clearly reduce the risk of poor outcomes like significant EGFR decline and there's some evidence that GLP-1 receptor agonists might reduce albuminuria. So would the combination of both confer additional nephroprotection, and is there any evidence to support this? I do think the combination probably will incrementally favorably affect kidney outcomes. And again, because of the, the pattern of the modification of the biomarkers, the SGLT2 inhibitors are 
pretty clearly more potent on modifying EGFR decline, whereas the GLP-1 receptor agonists modify albuminuria. And so they're working at different locations in the kidney um, with regards to mitigation of the, of the risk. And in addition, uh, and getting back to the earlier comment, adding the two classes together will give much more um, potent glucose control. And over longer periods of time, we're talking five and 10 year time horizons, the microvascular benefits of glucose control will likely uh, bear out to be incrementally affected when the two drugs are used together. So far, we've been talking in a purely theoretical sense, but in day-to-day practice, what do you think clinicians should be doing as of today? Should the combination be used as part of standard escalation from dual to triple therapy? Yeah, I think it's I think it's on the table now. In, in our, our clinical practice, as a cardiologist, we are routinely in our cardiology clinic now using both of these classes of medications, not not embarking on glucose control per se, but actually using them for their cardiovascular benefits. And we're not uncommonly using them together. Um, the, the only downside at present that I can see of using them together is the cost. Um, if patients have uh, access to these medications, we're fortunate to, I'm fortunate to work in a, in a healthcare program where these drugs are covered by the healthcare program. And so um, it's not incrementally expensive for the patients out of pocket for us to use them together. And so we are very commonly using them where we'll pick one to start and then we may assess the hemoglobin A1C. And if we then need additional glucose control, we will quickly uh, use the other medication. Using them together either in dual therapy or added onto the background of metformin when you reference triple therapy. Um, I think uh, I th- I think the first one we choose is based on cardiovascular risk mitigation that's completely independent of blood glucose, and that's based on the way that the trials were conducted. Um, and I think we're pretty commonly now reserving that addition of the second um, of these n- novel medications, the second one for the patients who need additional glucose control. Now, I don't know that that's necessary. I think probably both of the drugs will work in a complementary fashion, completely independent of glucose control. And since they don't have, they don't carry with them independent risk of hypoglycemia or other adverse effects that um, we really have little downside to use them together routinely in our patients. As a, and again, as a cardiologist, I'm seeing patients most commonly who have clinically manifest cardiovascular disease. And so almost all of my patients um, have some eligibility for these medications, either by virtue of their heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or prevalent atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease in the setting of type 2 diabetes. So do you think this is something that will happen more and more in the future? I do. I think as people get more and more comfortable um, using these medications, both individually and in combination, and as the prices drop, uh, obviously uh, these drugs will begin to become generic um, sometime in the very near future. And so hopefully as they become more affordable and we get more, um, we overcome the clinical inertia um, for doctors not wanting to use new things and, and broadening the concept that these patients with type 2 diabetes, especially with cardiovascular disease, um, it's not all about the glucose. These drugs are independent, are favorably effective, independent of their glucose effects. And so we have to get comfortable um, triggering their prescription, not just based on hyperglycemia, but based on the overall risk of the patient. But yeah, I I, I do see the the future where these drugs will be more and more routinely used and, and, and maybe supplant metformin as a first line therapy. You know, the the cardiology guidelines from Europe already endorse that concept that if a patient has newly diagnosed diabetes or medically untreated diabetes, it's reasonable to initiate an SGLT2 inhibitor 
or a GLP-1 receptor agonist, even ahead of metformin, just based on their cardiovascular um, benefits. And then reserve metformin to the, pa to the patients who are on one or both of these drugs um, who need additional blood glucose control. I think metformin is a very reasonable third-line drug from an evidence-based perspective. And the reason that it maintains its primacy in the algorithm is that it's so cheap and well-tolerated and so broadly available that um, it's, it's, it's quite reasonable to use it um, as, as the first-line drug for many patients as well. And finally, what do you think the key takeaway should be for this for our audience? Well, I think the key takeaway is we have to um, more and more understand that the benefits of these drugs are independent of blood glucose. Um, we're now doing SGLT2 inhibitor trials in patients with acute coronary syndromes who don't have diabetes. And so we're taking it one step farther. We've seen the benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with kidney disease with or without type 2 diabetes. We've seen their benefits in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction with or without diabetes. And now we're studying them in acute coronary syndrome patients um, without diabetes. We've already proven that with diabetes and atherosclerosis, they're beneficial. Um, and, and similarly for the GLP-1 receptor agonists, they're, they're beneficial effects. They have favorable effects on blood pressure. They reduce weight. Um, and so it's not all about the glucose. And we need to learn as cardiologists, as primary care doctors, not just endocrinologists, that we can prescribe these medications with anticipated cardiovascular benefits. Thanks again for joining me. It was a pleasure talking to you. This brings us to the end of today's time. To summarise, the effects of SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists may be complementary rather than additive, and there is some evidence to show that a combination may offer additional cardiovascular and renal protection, but further evidence is needed to support this. If you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to this podcast on your favourite app or recommend us to your colleagues. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review because it helps other people find us. And you can also access all of our free and accredited CME content at knowledgeandpractice.eu, including interactive case studies and packages for small group learning. Join us for our next episode when we'll provide a summary of this week's American Diabetes Association annual scientific sessions.